Hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Weissman. I'm the editor of Modern Retail, and I'm uh, joined by Aishwarya Iyer of Brightland Olive Oil. And I'm really excited to get into sort of the nuts and bolts of being a DTC business that sells a staple food and also just talk about the general phenomenon of home cooking nowadays since everybody is at home right now. So hi, Aishwarya. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining. So, uh, I mean, why don't we just begin at the very start for if, if there are people here who don't know what Brightland is, uh, it's a, you're an olive oil company, but what's the, what's the general genesis? How did it start? Yes. Okay. So Brightland is a pantry essentials company on our first hero products that we launched with in 2018 are, um, extra virgin olive oils that are crafted here in California. So, um, we work with uh, farms and farmers right here in the state. Um, just kind of zooming backwards a little bit, I grew up in Houston, Texas, moved to New York City for undergrad, then um, graduated into the recession and was just sort of <laughs> flailing around for a bit. And now, you know, just seeing what we have going on in the world, it just reminds me of that time so much. I can imagine. Um, it was very, very similar. And I think, you know, one of our interns is a 2020 graduate and all of the feelings that she talks about, I just like deeply resonate with. But um, in any case, I ended up getting a job at a finance technology company in, in New York City. And I was doing mainly government affairs and some um, corporate communications and just sort of living New York life where I had a spreadsheet of like 600 restaurants and, you know, was kind of bopping around town. And eventually around year eight of living in the city, I got into a serious relationship and both my partner and I said, okay, let's stay in and, and cook more. Like it, that became sort of delightful to do. And this was from a timing standpoint, like 2014, 2015-ish. And we started cooking more and we both realized that we kept getting stomach aches. And at first we thought that it was cheese or dairy. We thought that it was bread. We thought that it could be even spices. So we were cutting things out and eliminating things. And, you know, a nutritionist friend of mine said, you know, it could be the cooking oil you're using. And I did a little bit of research and I was using olive oil at the time and had never given olive oil a second thought, did a little bit of Googling, like, you know, bad olive oil or rotten olive oil. And what showed up was that there's actually a tremendous amount. The entire olive oil industry globally is rife with a lot of fraud. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of adulteration, which means you're blending palm oil or canola oil in with your olive oil. You're not getting the health benefits that you think you're getting. And I just thought the whole thing was just bizarre and crazy. And 60 Minutes had done a piece about olive oil fraud and what's going on globally. And I thought that that was also bonkers because nobody... Nobody I knew was talking about this, you know, and I started asking like even food, you know, very um, sort of like foodie friends of mine, um, did you know that this is happening? And everyone was like, no, I had no idea. And so at first I thought maybe I'll come up with that. You know, I had never worked in CPG. Like I didn't come from like Glossier or Warby Parker. Like I didn't <laughs> think, you know, that yeah. wasn't my background. So at first I thought, maybe I'll come up with a certification program. So that was actually what I was doing a little bit of research on. Like maybe I can come up with a certification program of some sort and um, curate a team of experts or something like that. And then when I moved to California, um, I moved in 2016-ish and was working at a startup here in LA, 
I learned about domestic olive oil production happening here in the United States. And until then, I had never even considered, I'd never even looked out West in terms of like olive oil, right? I was looking at Tunisia or Spain or Italy, Mm -hmm. Greece. And so um, that was really eye-opening. And when I started visiting farms here in California, I was so excited by just the optimism that the farmers had, the beautiful product they were creating. Like it was oil that I've never had before. And California has such a perfect Mediterranean climate. So olive trees really flourish here. So all of those things kind of put together, I was like, you know, I think there's something here. And the more friends that I spoke with, everyone was like, oh, I love olive oil. And I would be like, okay, what are you using at home? And nobody could tell me like what brand that they were using. So I think it was a combination of both of those things where I was like, I think there's something something here to um, dig into and, and maybe build. So that was the genesis of it. But I'll be honest with you, I because I didn't come from that sort of like direct-to-consumer background or I didn't go to Harvard Business School, like I had these preconceived notions of what an entrepreneur and a founder could look like. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't one of those kids that was like, oh, you know, I'm going to have a lemonade stand and like be super entrepreneurial. Like I think my dreams were actually smaller than what my reality has become as an adult. Um, I I just didn't, I didn't know. I came from a very safe, like immigrant family that expected me to become a doctor or an Mm -hmm. engineer and live in Houston. And so that's what I thought that my life would look like. Um, And so all that to say, um, from a timing standpoint, from the time that I sort of started thinking about olive oil seriously to actually like heads down saying, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try this. That was, you know, a period of three plus years. So that's really interesting. And how did you sort of get your feet wet specifically in CPG? Because that in and of itself, like coming from a tech background, like I'm sure you've, you learned a lot uh, working in business, but CPG is such another uh, sort of animal. And you 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 started yeah. an entire company where you sourced specifically from farms. Did you do any education yourself? Was it just sort of testing and learning? How did you go from sort of realizing that this was something you were interested in, something that you could create either a product or a standard like you originally were doing, and then say like, well, now I'm able to actually do this and start my own company? Yeah, I think from a career standpoint, I built my career on like being able to tell stories and building compelling narrative. And then on top of that, like emotional resonance. So I understood even when you work at a fintech company or a consumer technology company, you still need to build some sort of emotional resonance. And so I felt like if there was something tactile and tangible, oh my God, the amount of like um, sort of emotion that you can create around it could be really endless and just exponentially larger than something that's that you can't see or touch. Um, So I kind of went in with that baseline thinking, but from an education, like subject matter, you know, education, I took courses at the UC Davis Olive Center. I talked to dozens of um, people in the olive oil world across the world. Um, Gosh, I talked to, I honestly, I also outside of olive oil on the CPG side, I asked everyone I know to introduce me to, Anybody who is doing like a hot sauce company mm-hmm. to wine to um, beauty, like I wanted to talk to anybody and everybody about formulation, manufacturing, uh, coming into it, I didn't know what MSRP was. I didn't know what a co-packer was. Mm-hmm. And so I had a lot of um, just groundwork to kind of learn and, and understand. So 
people were very generous with their time and did a lot of 20 minute, 30 minute calls with me, which like I'm so grateful for. So I think it was a combination of those things. And then, um, on the like inspiration side, I quickly kind of realized that food led the way from like a clean food movement and beauty followed, but beauty leads the way in terms of talking about benefits, packaging, the Mm -hmm. sort of the like shine and glimmer that beauty is able to do. Food just isn't able to do that. Like no matter, maybe there are some standouts, but on the whole that I felt like there was an emotional disconnect. And so I actually looked closely at what beauty brands were doing and applied that to like the way we thought about um, kind of the the foundation that we set for the brand. Interesting. So when you when you say you looked at it from a beauty standpoint, was that in in how you told your founding story, how you explained the product, and how you designed the website? What what aspects had food been lacking that beauty excelled at? I think site definitely because food usually. Um, you know, I think now we have more food companies that are going the direct to consumer first route and then adding, you know, wholesale partners, or maybe some don't even have wholesale partners, but, um, traditionally they've been focused on big retail, you know, getting into Walmart, getting into target. And so the website is a little bit of an afterthought usually, Mm -hmm. or it's not necessarily a point of focus. Whereas at that, you know, by the time I started, um, researching and, and building Brightland, um, beauty had really, I mean, you just had so many brands that were digital first and the way they talk about benefits, like it's the same serum, but they talk about it so (laughs) well, you know, what it does for your skin and, and your, or your nails or it just, I thought the benefits piece of it was really wonderful. And when I looked at the olive oil space in particular, like olive oil is a, it's 4,000, 5,000 years old and has incredible benefits and actually benefits that have been studied, but even by the FDA, you know, this isn't like a, um, like, Oh, we're, you know, just kind of throwing words, meaningless words out there. Like there are so many incredible benefits from the antioxidants and the anti-inflammatory effects, but i never saw anybody leading that way or talking about, mm-hmm. um, olive oil in that way, besides kind of lumping it into a larger Mediterranean diet conversation. So I thought there could be a lot of opportunity there. And it's certainly something we're still, we're a very small team, so we're still working on that part. But um, I think that I was very inspired by how beauty thinks about that. And of course, packaging too. Mm -hmm. Did you find that what, like, as you were like looking into sort of that brand storytelling aspect and what would resonate with people and what worked and what didn't on the olive oil front? Was it, you know, did you find that people responded well to sort of the, you know, yeah. What, what were sort of the things that you found really worked that really got the message across that you, either you didn't expect or other ones that you thought would work and didn't? People love, loved talking about the freshness, flavor profile, mm-hmm. tasting notes. When I, when I started on this and started talking to farmers and people in the olive oil industry, uh, I had a number of people say, consumers don't care about that. They want it to taste super buttery, basically like butter. They don't want nuance. You know, we've been kind of trying to build that into our language because, you know, wine, on the other hand, wine has so much, you know, nuance and um, tasting notes and just the the conversations around terroir and the land. Mm-hmm. And olive oil equally has as many um, characteristics. but 
no one ever talks about it. And people, people kept saying, nobody's going to care about that. But when I started talking about it with people, I realized they actually love it. They love hearing that, you know, um, it's different olive blends and they were cultivated at different times of the year so that their tasting notes are a little bit different. And ultimately the way you can use them or the flavor profile might be like a little more artichokey and tomato versus a green tomato versus like a nutty herbaceous. Um, just being able to have those conversations, I think got people really, really excited. And the conversation around freshness too, because a lot of people were like, oh my God, this actually tastes fresh. It tastes like olives. It doesn't (laughs) taste like oil. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I feel like the way that Brightland has done collaborations also has many echoes of the way that different uh, say beauty companies does it. Uh, can you talk a little about, I know that you, you've you you've done work with like Sweetgreen and others. Can you talk a little about sort of A, the collaborations that you've done and B, how you've generally approached the, that that kind of work? Yes, absolutely. So we, we have, um, from the beginning, I knew that I wanted our brand and I knew I wanted Brightland to be a bit of a canvas. So if we were to collaborate with, um, whether it was artists or designers who we were really excited by and inspired by, or other brands, I wanted us to have that like creative flexibility. So we've done both. We've done artist collaboration. So anytime that we've come out with oils that are not the traditional like extra virgin olive oil, um, when we've come out with oils that are flavored, so a lemon flavored olive oil or... um, a chili-infused olive oil. Um, We also came out with a basil-infused olive oil every time we've worked with a different artist or designer to design our label. So we've basically commissioned an artist to design that special label. Um, And we've worked with BD Graft, Marley Culver, the Cartorialist. We worked with Peter Som, who's an incredible fashion designer and also happens to be an amazing artist. So we've had a nice variety of, of people kind of around the world and just their backgrounds. And um, that's been such a joy. And then on the brand side, we have collaborated with, um, like you brought up Sweetgreen. So Sweetgreen has, as you know, retail stores around the country, but um, they're in the process of exploring what, or you know, at least pre-COVID, we're in the process of kind of exploring what um, retail outposts with products could look like. Mm -hmm. So we worked together to develop a special label. Um, It's sweet. It's Brightland for sweet green and it, it sits at their, at select stores. And we've done the same with Headley and Bennett, which is an apron kind of kitchen workwear company. And we have a special label with them too. So if you think about it, like sweet green and Headley and Bennett kind of sit in the, culinary, like sweet greens, more on the like food service restaurant side. Headley and Bennett is very much like culinary chef focused. So for us, we thought that that would be, you know, they're the experts in that space. So we're so excited to partner with them in that way. And then on the artist collaboration standpoint, it's just much more of like a creative kind of um, blending of art and food. So especially with like the sweet green collaboration, what were your what were your metrics for success? Especially, were you was did you consider it more of a marketing just to get the name out there and be in a, a nationally available retail location, or did you like what what were you looking at when you were talking about it with them and when it actually was deployed out into certain locations? Um, I think that it was very much a just a genuine excitement that both of our brands were 
enthusiastic about each other. Like their team said that a number of their team members had either had purchased the bottles or had sort of been talking about them internally and were excited. And then on my end, you know, when I lived in New York, I think I ate sweet green all the time, like shoveling away desk salad at lunch. And so I had had such a kind of a long term affinity for the company. So it was less, I wouldn't call it so much as, you know, like immediately jotting down all of the KPIs, mm-hmm. but more as a, um, I just feel really enthusiastic about this. And they, you know, they're such a larger organization than Brightland, but they never made us feel that way. And I always talk about that when it comes to collaborations. And I always talk to other founders about that. Like you always want to make sure that whoever you're partnering with, that they see it as an added value too. And they're genuinely enthusiastic, not like a, oh, we're doing you a favor kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. That it's like an authentic partnership. So I think that was the kind of thinking that we went in with it. And by then we had already been working with other wholesale partners. So our partnership with Sweetgreen is also like a wholesale partnership with that added like special label element Mm -hmm. to it. And so we had kind of understood what the wholesale, the, the benefits are from not only a marketing standpoint, but also from a sales standpoint. So with Sweetgreen, it was, I guess, both of those things too. Absolutely. How do you approach, you know, given that you started out online and you were, you know, part of, you know, one of the the early to mid tier movements of food being DTC, how do you approach wholesale in general with that? Like what, you know, what is sort of the makeup? How, how, how do you sort of think about it compared to being a digitally first company? We always, I think I didn't understand wholesale at all. So candidly, <laughs> like, you know, I, I went to the couple months before Brightland launch, I went to the fancy food show just to kind of understand what was happening and just wrap my head around it. And I walked away from it so humbled because I did not understand the complexities and intricacies of like the buyer relationship Mm -hmm. or the, you know, what it takes to work with a whole foods or how to successfully launch on Amazon. Like I didn't understand any of that. And so I think that's why, you know, for me, I was just, okay, what's a simple way to launch? That's on our website. And in the beginning, like the first couple months, like we were shipping the, the bottles out from um, our office, you know? And so the first day that we launched, like my partner and I were packing all the boxes. Like I still have photos of us with hundreds of bottles around <laughs> us and packing each box. So like this was a very small operation. Like I didn't launch with some massive kind of warehouse and fancy, fancy things. Mm-hmm. So I think because of that, launching online seemed like the most, I think, accessible way to launch. But I always thought, okay, if there are stores, especially smaller stores where we have a direct relationship with that store owner, or, or, you know, if they have a buyer or a team, we can work directly with them rather than do the whole, like, I didn't even know what a distributor broker, all of that stuff is, but there's, there's just such a big ecosystem within retail. Um, so anyway, I thought, okay, let's start with, um, this, digital side, but, um, if there are retailers who are smaller, but, um, really align with us and have products that they showcase that we think align with Brightland's brand, then we'd love to have those conversations. So that happened pretty quickly, like three weeks after we launched, we started getting wholesale inquiries and, um, now we're in about 250 ish stores. 
Um, and they range, they range from lifestyle wellness stores. I would bucket them in like a few categories. Like we work with some lifestyle wellness retailers. We work with like brands like Goop or Sweetgreen, Huckberry. Mm -hmm. We work with larger retailers like Nordstrom, Neiman Marcus. We work with Bristol Farms here in California. That's our like, probably our like first foray into grocery. Um, We work with wine and cheese shops. And I love it because each of those um, different retailers brings us something different, you know? And, And that way you can also see Brightland in different capacities and kind of know that, oh, it's beautiful at a Poketo, which is like a very popular um, kind of gift lifestyle store here in LA, but it also does really well at your wine and cheese shop or at Bristol Farm. So it's been really wonderful to kind of see and, and to learn and to understand that our customers go there, they'll shop, they'll maybe buy a bottle, and then they might sign up for a subscription on our site or vice versa. So it's a nice kind of... Um, circular effect, if that makes sense. Yeah. So given the stores that you choose other, other than, uh, Bristol farms, it seems like you, the placement, especially at a place like Nordstrom or at a place like Sweetgreen, or I, it's very much about sort of just getting the name out in front of people and more, more hoping they go to the website than it is about them going to that store once a week, once a month and buying the product, which I think is a really interesting and unique way of looking at, uh, at brick and mortar as, as a channel. But then people also do buy, you know, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure they do. Yeah. That's the interesting part too. I, I didn't know what to expect, but (laughs) we were the first olive oil brand that Nordstrom had ever carried. And then also I want to caveat, this is all pre COVID. Like I know retail has just shifted so much, but pre COVID, we'll go into that. Yeah. This is the first olive oil brand that uh, Nordstrom had worked with and they were floored and very surprised by the success of it. So I think that everybody's learning and, and yeah. That's so interesting. We'll go in, you know, after this, I'll ask more about what's going on. Like COVID and then post COVID, but in terms of working with specific food retailers, what are your goals with that? Is, are you, are, do you, do you talk with places like Whole Foods? How do you sort of approach those conversations or do you, is that, you know, more further down the line? We have been approached by nearly every large food store. (laughs) I don't even know what to like (laughs) big box retailer. Mm -hmm. Um, we, We'll absolutely do it when the time is right. Mm-hmm. Like we are still a full-time team of three. Wow. You know, we are, we're a tiny team and I don't want to rush into something without us. And like I said, I was not educated on what retail even entailed. Mm-hmm. So I want us to have a really solid foundation before we enter a partnership like that. Um, and I also don't want that partnership to take up, you know, suddenly become 80% of our revenue or something like that. And then we rely on it so deeply that mm-hmm. we don't have diversification. Yeah. Like, so I want to make sure that we're well diversified. Out of curiosity, and I apologize if this is a really stupid question, um, does your sourcing being, you know, primarily California or all California, does that constrain you in terms of your scale? Like I, I've no, I've, I look at olive oil yeah. bottles and they have stamps everywhere that say Spain, Portugal, Greece. And you know, that just means that they're putting it in from everywhere. And so how, how do, you know, as you get bigger, how are you approaching sort of the sourcing element of that? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, 
Yeah, because ultimately California has a small um, small footprint in mm-hmm. terms of production. So there is like a capacity limit. Now we're nowhere close to like hitting that. So, you know, it's not something that I'm thinking about day in and day out, <laughs> but it's certainly something that is on my mind for the future. And I don't think I know yet. That's a great answer. I <laughs> No, really, I, I prefer it when people say, I don't know. Um, w- let's talk about like COVID. So what what did you experience first with your business? I know a lot of uh, home essentials businesses saw huge bumps. And I imagine, though, correct me if I'm wrong, that people were probably seeking out olive oil online when they didn't want to go to the source. Uh, yeah. How what did you experience? And also what? changes in your, you know, retail relationships? What, what happened on that front too? So, um, let's see, mid March, we started getting wholesale purchase order cancellations. Mm -hmm. So we had a $10,000 purchase order from a like national gift kind of, um, friend. I don't know if you can call it a franchise, um, but a, a brand, And they needed to cancel a purchase order. Um, A couple of the larger retailers we worked with canceled. A couple of the smaller ones said, hey, let's hold. We're going to have to close our stores. So we quickly saw like a $23,000 to $25,000 sort of disappearance. Um, But then on the flip side, like you said, people didn't want to go to stores. And so on the digital side, we definitely saw an uptick. That was, I would say that was like March into April and wholesale was like pretty quiet. And then mid April, starting mid April or early April, even, um, we started getting a lot of inquiries from restaurants who were building Uh, out pantry. Yeah. Building out like pantry programs, um, more like not gift. Yeah. I guess gift box. Like we've gotten a number of like gift box companies that want to, um, work with us, um, because, a lot of candidly, like a lot of companies don't, since you're not going to the office anymore, or you may not be able to meet for a quarterly party or get together. I think people are sending more corporate gifts mm-hmm. to their teams. So we've definitely seen an uptick on that front. Um, and then now we're seeing a lot of stores starting to reopen. I mean, and that's just around the country and kind of reorders. Everything's kind of moving back to this, like, quote unquote normal place, save for the, I think like the larger retailers still, because they still probably have inventory on hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that worries me still a little bit because the cases aren't going down. So I don't know. It's scary. And like most places, um, did, did they kind of even out in March to April in terms of the wholesale going down and digital and other restaurants going up? That's good. Um, and so I'm fascinated with sort of the restaurant and corporate side of things. Do you view those as potential long-term relationships or like restaurants are going to change drastically, it seems like, and who knows how long they'll be able to ever, they'll be able to go back to full capacity. And so a lot of them are pivoting to these kinds of boxed ideas or different ways of seeing themselves as quasi retailers, quasi restaurants. When you're talking with, you know, these restaurants that reach out to you, how are these conversations going? Are they, are they just trying to figure out something for now or are they looking to these as potentially more long-term solutions? I think it's a mix of everything. And I think for us, if we can indirectly support in that way, then we are so happy to, I'm not looking at it like you need to be committed to this program. Like 
I have so much empathy for a restaurant owner. I cannot mm-hmm. even imagine what that would feel like, yeah. you know, I just cannot imagine. So, um, if we can be helpful, we would love to be. And if, if that's, you know, just for a couple months, if it's, um, if it's something they decide to do long-term, then we would be so glad to be a part of that too. How has sort of on the branding side and maybe more event side, your shift, your, your thought shifted. I, I like you, t- we've, we've talked a lot about sort of tasting notes and I imagine that th- a big part of getting people to understand Brightland was getting people to actually try it and maybe going to different locations. Have you upped your digital programming? Have like what, I know that you've always had a pretty, a pretty solid presence on Instagram, but have you changed the way that you've approached it? Has, you know, now that everybody's at home and can't really talk to, you know, talk to other people in person or touch things. Absolutely. We completely changed the way we were um, planning everything. So at the beginning of the year, um, I was looking for a community manager, a full-time community manager to come on board and really dive into events, doing like mini pop-ups, you know, in select cities, because we saw the success in when people try the product and when we're there in person and they're meeting us. Um, we just, again, we didn't have the, the um, sort of the team to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And so that was definitely an area of focus. Like we even had um, events with the Nomad. We had events here in LA that we were planning. We Like there was just so much of that. We were actually going to be moving into a new office space that would um, double as sort of like a tasting kind of a showroom almost. Like we had a lot of those kind of plans in the, in kind of set on the ground. And then um, I think it was like March 15th it was really like, yeah, I think that that was when we said, okay, none of this is going to happen and for who knows how long. And so, um, I was thinking about, okay, what do people really want? Like everyone was very, I think, uneasy, like on edge. And so I thought a lot about what do people need during this time? And ultimately, like we always think of our brand as a very optimistic brand, Mm -hmm. like looking at the positive. So we came out with a digital programming series called On the Bright Side in mid-March. And basically we said, okay, every few days we're going to have like calm cooking classes. Maybe we'll have a musician just like play music while you're cooking. We will do, we'll have conversations. Like selfishly for me, I was like, okay, we're all going to be at home now. I want to have conversations with like people in wine and in the cheese world <laughs> who I have been following and chat with them. And maybe somebody will want, you know, folks will want to join in. And so that was, that has been a lot of fun and um, really wonderful because we've had thousands and thousands of people tune in to kind of listen and learn and hopefully like cook and enjoy. Has your uh, like customer acquisition on the digital front plan changed? Have you been sort of more aggressively going after people who've been Googling for olive oil? What, what's been your general strategy with that? Especially as, <laughs> especially as like, I feel like there's been a big shift in, in how people, you know, like, I don't know, there's been a big shift online just in general that costs went down. Now there's a lot of uncertainty because a lot of big brands are pulling out. How are you approaching this as, as a startup founder? Well, digital acquisition has never been the primary way that we've acquired customers. And I've been very adamant about that kind of coming back to like that retail conversation Mm -hmm. of never having one channel dominate your, especially a third party channel that way, because you're just at the mercy of them. So like, we're, you know, 
when we launched, we were also bootstrapped. So I want to point that out. Like we were a hundred percent bootstrapped. Like I put in my savings to start the company and I did not take any money from friends or family or angel investors when we launched. And so because of that, we did not use paid acquisition as a primary marketing channel. I started using it as a, okay, you know, like let's do a little bit of retargeting. Like if people have come to the site, they can, Mm -hmm. you know, just, I wanted to add it as a supplemental thing. And that's what we did for the first year. I raised a small, like, I would call it like friends and family plus angels, like a, I don't know if you want to call it a pre-seed, something like that Mm -hmm. at the end of last year. And so that was how I was able to like hire a head of operations and pay myself a salary and um, devote a little more spend on the digital acquisition side. So the last few months, we that's when we've actually invested a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But I think we're still very much in the early days of kind of understanding um, what we think about it. And I'm still very wary about um, devoting too much space to it, if okay. that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. In the next, you know, couple months to let's say six months to a year out, what are you sort of focusing on in terms of growth now that there's, it seems like there's just so much uncertainty. I imagine pre-COVID you were looking at different collaborations, different potential places you could partner with. And now since who knows what will be open and how they will be open, how are you sort of approaching that uncertainty and what are your general goals for growth going on going forward? Well, I mean, I think people are always going to be excited about cooking, being at home. And that's the like brand that we're cultivating. So I'm really focused on like, how can we talk about, you know, like I said, like health benefits. I think that's an area that we haven't really like touched on that much. And that's something I'd love to do a little bit more of. I'd love to dive a little bit deeper and work with like recipe developers that we've never worked with. And then on the product side, on July 15th, we are actually announcing our next category outside of olive oil. So um, we've been very much heads down. um, Yeah, working on that. Wow, that's exciting. It's like eight months in the making. That's amazing. Very excited. Are you like, I, I, I'm excited to learn what that is when July 15th rolls around, but, uh, <laughs> do you have general, a general idea for sort of like the amount of different, uh, categories you want to go into? Is it just, you want to be a, a, a full sort of pantry staple company? How, how are you, how are you thinking about that? I like the idea of, you know, sort of this notion of the forgotten pantry essentials, mm-hmm. because when we think about like clean food, everyone's talking about, um, okay, you know, where is your meat sourced from milk, like going dairy free, like there's a lot of conversation about that. There's a ton of conversation around like healthier for you or better for you snacks too, you know, whether it's like the M&Ms reimagined or Reese's peanut butter cups or granola bars, like there's so much of that happening, which is great. But I think on the pantry side, there hasn't been as much. So I'd love to explore that a little further. And I think for us, like we always want to really honor the sourcing and we want to honor the origin story and tell that and, and make sure that that's incorporated in our supply chain in a really real way. I feel strongly about that. So um, I think as we learn more about A, our customers and what they're asking for, and then B, like our 
our own education around sourcing, mm-hmm. I think that that is then informing how we're thinking about product strategy. And, you know, like a small example of this is the number one most requested kind of product edition that we've gotten is a spout for our uh, olive oil. <laughs> and it's so, seems sounds so silly, but we finally said, okay, we need to do this. We're getting DMs and emails all the time about this. And so we spent some time, um, you know, kind of creating that. And we, um, we debuted it last week or the week before. And just in the first couple of days, like hundreds were like, just, it was so amazing to see. Um, and so, yeah, all that to say, (laughs) I think when you listen to your customers, you know, I used to, I, I feel like founders always say that, like, listen to your customers. And I remember sometimes being like, but what do you ask them? Like, how do you listen to your customers? <laughs> but it's kind of neat to see when you actually do listen to your customers and do something for them, like what happens. That's so interesting. Like I, like I can actually speak from, like from personal example about the spout where I, a month ago, I realized that I did not have a good spout for pouring olive oil. And I went on Amazon to look for it and I got really overwhelmed and read too many reviews. And I was looking for <laughs> one of those plastic squeeze bottles and I ultimately scrapped it. So I completely understand your customers and that there's a huge demand for that because I've been looking for one too. So that's really, really interesting. <laughs> um, all right. Well, Ashwarya, this has been so fascinating. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time. I am so happy to have been here and so appreciate Um, us having this wonderful conversation. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. Our producer is Pierre Bienname, who also produced our theme music. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week. Mm